This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Sophie Holm. Sophie is an entrepreneur and a co-founder at Address Capital, which is a digital assets investment firm. She's also an investor, both in cryptocurrency and other startups. Her recent project is Dam Finance, a community-driven platform that's trying to promote decentralized technology and make cryptocurrency projects more accessible to investors. Sophie also hosts a great podcast called I Also Want Money, which explores our relationship to money and strategies to democratize wealth. I had a fascinating conversation with Sophie today. I've invested in a cryptocurrency company, and I'm always curious to learn more. I loved hearing her perspective on the rapidly changing landscape. So let's get right to my chat with Sophie Holm. Sophie, I'm thrilled to have you here today. For all my listeners, Sophie is my tutor in crypto. And I met Sophie a few months ago and somehow convinced her to tutor me and a bunch of other women in cryptocurrency because I felt like as women, we were largely being left out of this conversation and mm -hmm. all these dudes were coming together and making millions of dollars in, in crypto and making all these investments and using all these terms that I had never heard and acronyms. And I was like, this isn't fair. This seems like classic classic patriarchy. Yeah. Um, and so you were very kind to, to take on the role of tutor. I think there are a lot of women out there who would really love to understand a little bit more about this and how they can participate. We're hearing about crypto every day in the news. Will you just tell us a little bit about your background, Sophie, for context, so everybody kind of understands how you come to this? 
Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to speak about crypto. My background, I'm Danish, I'm Danish nationality. I moved to the UK about six years ago and just recently moved back to Denmark, actually, to Copenhagen. I started my career in fashion. Believe it or not, I started in the fashion industry and corporate strategy. At the point, one of the largest conglomerates, we did a lot of M&A, diversifications, thought about repositions of our portfolio brands, et cetera, et cetera. And then I transitioned into tech in 2016 and in crypto particularly. And I worked with some of the largest financial institutions, insurance companies, regulators globally around how to think about blockchain and crypto technologies, how to think about implementing them, different use cases, et cetera. And then recently, because of my private investments, actually, in the token space, I've been investing in cryptocurrencies and tokens for a number of years. And one of the things that we I really realized was you can generate such exceptional returns if you really understand the space and if you also utilize some of the underlying infrastructure components. So with that, we recently, me and a partner, launched a crypto, small crypto hedge fund, a boutique hedge fund that invests um, solely in crypto assets and using a lot of the infrastructure that's completely token native. Right. And so let me ask you a little bit about that, because one of the key lessons that I've learned from you is that is there shouldn't is that it should be the investment in blockchain should be totally disintermediated. So you you have to own your keys and you have to have your wallet. So how how does having a hedge fund around crypto work with that philosophy? Well, so as I'm sure you've also felt, Gwyneth, is it can be really overwhelming to pick the right tokens to invest in, right? And as we had more and more conversations, one of the biggest realizations was for us, holding Ethereum and Bitcoin, which we'll probably get into what they are and what they mean, is not enough if you really want to experience some of that big return that you can in the crypto space in today's world. So. We had a couple of family offices in Europe approach us and say, hey, we really want to get into this space. We have a couple of money, millions, <laughs> that, <laughs> that we would like to invest in, but we really don't know anything about it. And we want to work with people that use the technology that have worked in the industry that understand uh, the tech, but we're not interested in doing all of the due diligence ourselves in managing public and private keys, all of the kind of custodial aspects that we have also had a lot of extensive conversations around. So what we decided to do was, well, we could create a, a hedge fund using Web3. So really being, we don't use the traditional custodial accounts, all that stuff. We, we really try and leverage the underlying infrastructure. So that's how it plays in for us. And what does that mean, Web3? Explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Web3 really is the new paradigm of the evolution of really the internet. So when, we, when the internet emerged, it was kind of termed it Web2.0. It was centralized organizations building different services and products for consumers. Web3.0 is a smarter, decentralized uh, token economy that allows for a lot of new business models and ownership of assets. Let's get into what cryptocurrency is, because as I said, everybody's heard about it, but 
it's it it is kind of this it's obviously very new it, it took me a while to understand exactly what it is and how it works so could you kind of give us the 101 on what is cryptocurrency yeah we joke about it that it's fake internet money <laughs> <laughs> there's always a little truth to every joke right but no in all seriousness cryptocurrencies are or i like to call them tokens really because that's more all-encompassing for what's happening is digital assets that are designed to work as a medium of exchange for services and products or as a store of value. So it kind of has those two broad categories. This technology that emerged is coined blockchain or distributed ledger technology. And what that does is it records individual ownership on these stored global distributed computer databases. They're called the ledgers. And they use really strong cryptography, which is just another word for data encryption, to secure and verify these transactions as they happen on this global network. So that's really at a high level what cryptos are. It's digital money, right? You, you, you can send it back and forth. It's kept in this bank of computers. Um, or a digital unit of value. It doesn't have to be programmable money. It can be a, another store of, of value. And so to explain more about that distinction. Yeah, sure. So the first crypto that was ever created was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is really the store of value. It's a digital gold of our age, as many people like to refer to it as. And it was actually designed to be a payment mechanism. However, it's proven more valuable as a store of value than it has a payment mechanism. But in some countries, it is very much used um, to pay for goods and services. So that's kind of one category of the crypto industry. And then on the other side, you have these platforms like Ethereum, Solano, Cardano, Polkadot, Kusama. I mean, now I'm naming a lot of, of names, but these layer one infrastructures that are a way to, again, record transactions as they happen with an embedded payment mechanism. Mm -hmm. But you can, on top of these platforms, you can build different products and services. You can uh, code into a smart contract the ownership of a certain piece of art or the ownership of data and how that data is allowed to be used. So there is all of these new business models and infrastructure that are emerging as a result of this blockchain component or this blockchain innovation that has been occurring over the last eight years. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. 
Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So I want to go back to Bitcoin for a minute because that's sort of the most broadly known. And that that's its own blockchain technology, meaning you can't build anything on top of blockchain, right? It just exists. You technically can build on top of, but on okay. Bitcoin specifically, it's not designed to be built on top, anything to be built on top of. So um, on Bitcoin broadly, there's not a lot of applications that sit on top of the platform. There's a lot of applications that are being built on top of the Ethereum network. Right. So, so when you say blockchain was originally, I mean, when you say that Bitcoin was originally developed to send money between people or to send currency between people, what happened that what happened that it be it became its own currency? Like if it was supposed to be technology to send, like how did the currency itself become valuable? So Bitcoin, just to take a step back, when the initial white paper was created or released around Bitcoin in 2008, right after the financial crisis, there were kind of two key points that Satoshi Nakamoto, who is this anonymous source who we don't know who is, made in his paper. One was, or she made, or they made, we don't know. I, th- I have was, a friend who thinks they know who Satoshi is, by the way. I would love to hear that theory. <laughs> I think a lot of people think they know who it is. I, I don't have a, I don't actually have a theory on who I think it is. But anyways, one was, it's a financial infrastructure outside of our existing financial infrastructure today, right? So it exists with no control of third party, no central banks, no commercial banks, no regulators can control. Not, not backed by any commodity. Correct. Not backed by any. It's software that's running on a global ledger. The second point to that, which kind of plays in, is Satoshi's argument was we cannot trust the central banks to maintain the value of our currency because they're debasing it so fast. They're printing so much money that the debasement of the currency is really horrible for private and institutional investors, right? So his argument or their argument or her argument was was we need a system that's outside of our traditional financial system today and it's controlled by software. As which the first... Is it programmed so that it always remains agnostic? It is programmed so it always remains agnostic. It is capped at 21 million BTC that can ever exist. So it has a scarcity element and that's part of where the value comes in. So because it's, I mean, as with any really asset today, the value comes in the trust in the network. Right. So it's been so widely adopted by people that there's an inherent trust in there is some value associated with these programmable monies, these digital currencies, Bitcoin is an example here, that I am willing to trust the network with my fiat because I think it's a better store of value. It's a better hedge against what's happening in the macro landscape than just holding US dollars. And it's one of the only asset classes that has outperformed the debasement that we're experiencing. It's crazy. I mean, 30% of US dollars in existence was printed within the last year. And, and so 
so is that is that the main reason why for example you have so much of your wealth in crypto like how yeah, concerning so is that to you not concerning at all I'm, I'm i'm really not concerned about my crypto exposure no to no i mean i mean in terms of how how concerned are you about the debasement of fiat currency oh very concerned that's why i have i hold no cash I hold very little cash and it's only to pay for bills and groceries and whatever else is required in a daily life. Although, um, although soon you may be, you know, paying for groceries on Amazon with Bitcoin. Exactly. Well, that's a great speculation. I think one of the reasons has been a bit of a bump in the crypto price because we've experienced some crazy volatility since we last spoke, Reneth, in the crypto industry in general. But I think it's also one of the reasons, I don't know if you've seen, but El Salvador, right, has adopted Bitcoin as a legal tender, meaning companies now have to accept Bitcoin as a form of payment service. And one of the reasons they've done that is their economy is 30% remittance which means sending money from abroad back home. Right. And that takes a lot of cost in transaction fees and like a lot of money is lost in those transactions. So, you know, what they went out and said was, well, we can use this Bitcoin infrastructure and it doesn't cost anything more than whatever we have to pay the network in maintaining the ledger. So I think there's a lot of interesting movements around how the US dollar as an example being the global reserve is may potentially under threat. So I understand how certainly Bitcoin holds its value because it's finite, right? So everybody's agreed or most people have agreed now, Bitcoin is real. So you can't continue to print Bitcoin and debase the value. So that I understand more, right? Because I'm I'm old and I'm I'm coming from this kind of fiat currency and <laughs> legacy. So how how does something like Ethereum or ether hold value like why does it what happens what are the inputs that that make that valuable right so when you look at because i think this is probably the best way to think about the crypto industry or the token economy is when you evaluate different projects there are a number of different criteria that at least we like to apply to the token space and it really comes down to look at it, looking at it in five different categories. The first is there are certain coins that are purely speculation. These are the meme coins, right? They don't hold, holding that token doesn't grant you anything except whatever the next trader is willing to pay for it. So a good example of that is storage coin. It is being pumped by people like Elon because of the meme culture and, and the narratives around whatever it stands for, but it doesn't what actually does it stand for. It's just, it's just speculation, right? Okay. It doesn't, is that like, really, that's like Dogecoin and those yeah, kind exactly. of things? Yeah. Being pumped by influencers really. And those can have great upside, but they're very, very risky. And I generally stay away from them because it's, you can't model the economic value of those tokens. They're just speculation. Then you have a set of tokens that are governance tokens only. So when you hold those tokens, you have rights to make certain governance decisions. It could be voting on how the treasury is managed. It could be voting on the product roadmap, et cetera. Again, I stay away from those tokens because it's hard to quantify what the economic value is of just a governance right. 
So I find those also more difficult for me to kind of sleep at night knowing I hold those. But then you have three other categories that are really interesting, and that kind of gets to Ethereum as well. One, you have utility tokens. So the way you can think about these tokens are to use the infrastructure, to use Ethereum, you need to pay a gas fee. And that gas fee is paid to all of these global computers that are managing the ledgers and maintaining the integrity of the network, right? So to use Ethereum, you have to pay ETH, which is the short version of Ethereum's token. It's called Ether, E-T-H. The more activity you have on the Ethereum network, the more the demand for the Ethereum token is going to increase and therefore also the price and the value. And a lot of platforms like NFTs are built on the Ethereum network. So to purchase an NFT or to sell an NFT, you need to pay a little bit of ETH gas fees every time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this operating, new operating system. I can think of it as iOS, but not owned by any single organization with an embedded payment mechanism. And then the final kind of token or the two final tokens to look at is cash flow tokens. So these are tokens where when you hold them, you have a claim of the cash flow that's generated by the platform. And the fourth or the fifth one, which is the well, final which are one. Those? Which are those ones? Examples are SushiSwap. Mm-hmm. You like that one. I do like it. It is an incredible project. It's a decentralized exchange with more trading volumes than most of the centralized exchanges. Every time there's a transaction on the SushiSwap network, there's a little bit of fee that goes to sushi holders as a incentive to hold and maintain the community and the network. So those are cash flow generating tokens. And then you have digital assets. Those are like NFTs, right? They are units of value, some store of value. And you are holding those because you believe in that specific particular asset. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Let's really break down NFTs for a second because they are, I I, I think it's really hard to get your head around what they are and why they're worth anything, right? It's like, I'm from a world where a painting is done by somebody amazing who has talent and doing something expressive and you hang it on your wall. An NFT, a non-fungible token is a what? So an NFT is really just a framework a software framework for capturing a unique unit of value or ownership. So this could be art. It could be rights to intellectual property. It could be data, rights to intellectual property, IP. But like, for example, how would that? Patents. Okay. Or intellectual property in a company or copyright access. All of these things can be coded into... The, and a smart contract, which is just really just an NFT framework, and it proves that you are the owner of that particular unit of value. And what's different about 
NFTs, non-fungible tokens versus fungible tokens is fungible tokens is like Bitcoin. One Bitcoin is always equivalent to another Bitcoin, right? You can always trade a Bitcoin for Bitcoin. A non-fungible token is never equivalent to another non-fungible tokens. So what determines its value? Whatever the next buyer is willing to pay for. <laughs> so scary. Like, like with art, like with art today. <laughs> Your Picasso is only worth whatever the next Picasso collector is willing to pay for your Picasso. I don't have a Picasso. <laughs> it was just an example I could come up with. <laughs> but maybe I'll buy an NFT of a, of a Picasso print. It, that's the thing. It doesn't have to be digital units of value. I mean, Sotheby's, Christie's, they're all looking at how they can apply digital ownership to physical goods. Yeah. So how can you prove, because there's so much, I mean, units of value, especially in the arts and the music world, like who has right to certain things? There's so many lawsuits around it. There's so many legal arguments around traceability of the goods, et cetera, et cetera. And codifying it into a ledger where it's tamper-proof really increases a lot of interesting dimensions, like who has the rightful rights to this or you know where has it come from has it been through any money laundering activities that right. kind of stuff so sotheby's and christie's are working on ways to express a physical piece of art with an nft component mm -hmm. and they have also started auctioning off digital art in the yeah. form of nfts and it also i was i was watching an auction the other day i think it was at sotheby's and they were accepting crypto for a banksy i think it was there was a couple of paintings in the auction that they were accepting crypto for was it bitcoin or bitcoin. yeah it's pretty crazy you know it's like it's it's so non-intuitive for somebody like me to understand the emergence of this and how it works like it takes so much concentration for me to understand it and and i wonder if is this analogous to early days of the internet when people were like what is this this isn't here to stay i don't get it i like writing you know letters and putting them in the mail like like is this happening in in 25 years is is blockchain and and all these tokens like this is going to be the economy i absolutely believe so and if you look at the adoption and where we are in the kind of development of the crypto industry we're kind of equivalent to the internet adoption in 1997 right and from 1997 to today we still had a lot of way to go in terms of understanding how we can use the internet the kind of business models that can emerge you know, innovation in the, in the space. So I, but the difference is we're moving so much faster, right? Mm -hmm. It took Amazon 23 years to become half a trillion dollar in market cap. It took Ethereum six. Think about that acceleration of innovation. So I think the next generation of FANG stocks, if you like, Facebook, Amazon, Google, they're going to emerge from the token economy. They're not going to emerge from the traditional economy today. It's so and I wild. think every business owner should be thinking about how to plug into the token economy. So, so tell us more about that. I mean, teach me about, so for, for me, for example, at Goop, like what, what should I be thinking about now? What should business owners be thinking about 
So there is a number of different ways I think you can approach it. You can approach it from a, are you going to accept crypto as a payment vehicle? And does that potentially open up for a much broader addressable market, right? Because not everybody's going to have access to US dollars, but everybody with an internet connection can have access to Bitcoin. So will Goop suddenly be able to sell and ship to regions of the world it didn't have access to before? That's one way to kind of think about it. Another is, are you going to start diversifying your treasury? So how do you manage your treasury today? Do you keep all of your treasury in U.S. dollars? How does that protect you against the debasement we've talked about? So that's something we're seeing with MicroStrategies, Twitter, um, Square. What they're doing is partly diversifying the treasuries into crypto because they see it as the only sustainable asset that they can really feel comfortable is not going to lose its value compared to the dollar. Another way to look at it will be from a marketing perspective. So there are companies out there that have literally just started tapping into the meme culture of crypto and without having anything else to do with crypto, they have increased sales by like double, 3x, 30%, I There are different numbers out there. But so that's another way to think about short-term tapping into what's happening. And then I think one thing that we all should start talking more about is do we give employees options to being paid in crypto? We're seeing more and more sports stars demanding to be paid in crypto technologies or cryptocurrencies. Should your marketing manager have the same same right? So talk to me about the volatility a little bit because like sometimes when I'm on my Abra app, that's why I bought my my Bitcoin on an app called Abra. And sometimes I get you know these notifications about ether and dot and all these ones that you like and i think oh my god and i worry about i worry about your portfolio and then i see it bounce back but honestly like if i see a huge drop i think about (laughs) you holding all your wealth in crypto and i break into a sweat so first of all i want to understand the volatility and then i want to understand a little bit about like around the psychology of you crypto cowboys who can just withstand this kind of volatility like you just keep your calm through it all always okay so let's start with so i'm laughing on my end over here because it's been a crazy time but let's start with the volatility yeah why because it's so new there's still so much skepticism we call it fud right fear uncertainty and doubt And it's driving the market at times. So when you, and it's still driven so much by certain individuals and what they say. I mean, you saw Elon suddenly deciding that Tesla for some reason is not going to accept Bitcoin any longer. And it just started a shitstorm. Am I allowed to use those words? You sure are. (laughs) Shitstorm of, you know, people panic selling. So it's still such a young asset class that, to your point, people get scared, especially people that have come in in the last couple of months and they've maybe bought what's considered the top right now. That's they're what I did. They're selling at a loss. Yeah. Right. And the majority of people selling right now are people selling at a loss because they don't understand the technology. They are worried that long term it's not going to rebound. So there is a lot of this FUD floating around the market, which is not helpful for anybody. Also, the market depth in crypto is not very high. So what that means is 
so much of the assets are hold in cold wallets. So when there is a sudden panic sell or there's even a sudden short squeeze, meaning people buying up assets, it moves the crypto prices a lot compared to any other asset class. So therefore, you also see a lot of volatility, even though it's a small percentage of all the available tokens that are actually being traded. So it's another thing to keep in mind. And then, you know, part of the barrier for this space is lack of proper quality education. Mm-hmm. number one. And so people don't understand and We've talked a little bit about that, but then regulators, right? Regulators don't know how to approach the space. It's still such a gray zone for a lot of global regulators and how to validate it, how to review it, how to approach it, how to think about it when different, you know, events happen. So we've seen a lot about a lot on that lately, actually, there's been quite a lot of regulatory news on, for example, Binance and FTX, which are these exchanges where you can also do a lot of leverage trading. Unlike other industry in crypto, you could do leverage trading of 125x. That's insane amount of leverage. You would never do that in in other industries unless you were a really, really experienced trader. And even then, it's not a lot of people that that would touch that kind of leverage. Yeah, that's... Regulators are coming in saying you have to lower your leverage amount to max 20x, right? Which is still insane amounts of leverage. But you can imagine that what regulators are really concerned around is consumer and private investor protection Mm -hmm. and then clarity around taxation. And what's good is that we are starting to see some of these things being clarified further and further. I think it's a good thing that there is some crackdown on the amount of leverage because it also kind of plays into the volatility we're seeing when there is a lot of options that are being liquidated. It moves the entire industry enormously. So I think that's another reason that there is a lot of volatility is that like regulatory uncertainty. And then let me just ask you one other thing. So in terms of mitigating volatility over time, what do you think are going to be the key things that need to happen? Like, is the US government going to have to formally say, we recognize this as a currency? The US has recognized it as a speculative asset, right? Which is why it's being taxed as a investment. So if you hold it for more than a year, it's capital gains tax. If you hold it for less than a year, it is income tax. So there's already been some progress being made around the clarity around how we think about it from a regulatory framework. Because the token economy is so many things, right? It's not just a speculative investment. It is actual products and services that people are utilizing every single day you have to nuance how you look at it. Regulators can't just come in and say all tokens will fall into this category. And I think that's where they've been struggling because which tokens become securities that needs to be regulated by the SEC and which do not fall into that category. So yeah, and who's determining which one of these tokens are are going to be reputable and which are garbage. And if, if, if also like there's absolutely no regulation, new coins are popping up every day, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's over 10,000 today on the market. How do you even start to do diligence that? Right. So I think that goes back to actually, so we're never going to, we can never expect regulators or 
government institutions to come in and tell us which ones are reputable and which ones are not. That is up to ourselves as investors to do the proper due diligence. Mm-hmm. They will never go in and say that about stocks and, and, and debt and other kinds of financial instruments either. So that's up to the private investor. And here I would come back to the five categories, which kind of token is it? What kind of value does it fundamentally derive and, and give you as a investor? And that's how I would start thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So we can never expect regulators to do that. But what we can expect regulators to do and what we are seeing is they can tighten the requirements around what tokens become regulated uh, financial instruments that then needs to be approved by the SEC. And so will the exchanges themselves be responsible for filtering out the, the coins that are you know, more reputable or not? Again, exchanges can list any coin any that coin. they so wish, right? You have seen Coinbase fucking list Dogecoin. I'm like, how can you be listing Dogecoin above some of these other very reputable coins? But clearly the business model is transaction volumes and Dogecoin has a lot of transaction volumes. A lot of people want to you know, trade in and out. So it's a great business for them. Mm-hmm. So you can never really, you can never trust anybody to sort out reputable coins from non-reputable except for yourself. Okay. Or whoever you trust as an advisor, right? So for for somebody who's listening, it's like, yeah, I want to get in on this. Like, what are the coins that you think are the safest coins? So for anybody who is new to the industry that is looking to get in, there are a couple of things I would say to consider before I go into specific coins. First of all, just to go back to the volatility and to the psychology of managing volatility, because that's important when you talk about getting into investing too, you have to take a long-term horizon. One of the reasons I can sleep at night is long-term, I believe this is the future and long-term, we are seeing massive growth. If you look at Bitcoin year to date, from January 1st to today, we're up more than 33%. That's double the S&P 500. So don't get caught up in the daily, weekly, or monthly, or quarterly volumes. You really should be taking a longer-term horizon. Ethereum is up 220% from January 1st. And that's just the two largest like blue-chip coins of the crypto industry. So while we're seeing short-term volatility and short-term dev, you have to take the longer term uh, perspective and horizon and be able to take a step back. And the days and the weeks and the month where everything is red, just don't open the app if you can't handle the, the psychology of it. And are you really able to do that? Are you really able to breathe through it and not get worried or triggered? I'm able to breathe through it. I'm able to look at the <laughs> markets every day because I have to, but I don't get worried. Again, I come back to like, How has it performed since I started investing? Could any other asset class outperform this? Because then I would consider it. I'm not married from a philosophical standpoint to the crypto industry. I think there are some beautiful things about the crypto industry, like financial inclusion and a way to avoid financial oppression and warfare. And, you know, there's a lot of beautiful things that crypto allows in the world that we've never really had the possibility of before. But if there were other assets out there that could do as well as the crypto industry could, I would look seriously at them. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't find them. I mean, right. potentially some real estate in certain markets could do well too. And, you know, but they're less liquid. The point about, I can always trend in and out of crypto. It's a super liquid market. But it also takes a certain type of person, right? Who's not diversified at all. Like you're just like all in. I am all in 
until I hit certain price targets that I have set for each coin, then I will be trading out. And then I'll probably trade in again. I mean, I have a strategy for it. I'm not just long only and then close my eyes and hope for the best. But in terms of anybody new coming in, I think the number one thing is figure out how long time horizon do you have to invest in this space? People and are- how, what, what should be the horizon? So you're saying- One to three years. One to three, okay. Is what I would say. I mean, people say, don't invest whatever you can't afford to lose. I hate that because nobody's going to want to invest anything if they think they're going to lose it. I mean, it's just, I, I think it, a better way to think of it is what is the, an amount of money you're comfortable living without for one to three years? And then that's what you should consider playing around with. And then the second step is understanding the tokens you're investing in. Don't just invest because Elon is tweeting about it or Gwyneth is talking about it on her group podcast or <laughs> whatever. You have to do your own research and make sure you're comfortable with the tokens that you're investing in. And if you don't understand it, because it is, to your point, a lot of unlearning of traditional ways of doing business, business models, technology, innovation, and then a lot of new learning. Mm -hmm. Seek out some people that you, you trust that might have some experience in this space. And then start with the blue chips. If I yeah. was to go in again, I started with Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then I moved you know, down the, the scale in terms of, of tokens. And then dollar cost average your way into a trade, dollar cost average your way out of a trade. Because of the volatility, you want to ride it out. So I always say break it up into four buckets, whatever you've decided to invest, and invest 25% at a time over a period of time so that you ride the waves up and down. Right. That's really good advice, actually. And so just practically speaking, then what app do you download? Like, what is a Ledger wallet? I, tell us a little bit about the tactics of it all. Oh, that's a good one. So... <laughs> In terms of going from, there are a number of different processes to look at. Going from fiat, so US dollars, to a cryptocurrency, you often need to go through a centralized exchange. This can be setting up an account with Coinbase or Kraken or Gemini or even Binance or any of these that allows you to, that allow you to trade from US dollar to a cryptocurrency. That's step number one. Now, step number two is once you've constructed whatever portfolio you wish to hold, you need to figure out where the other tokens are available. A lot of the tokens I hold are not available on centralized exchanges. They're only available on decentralized exchanges. So then you need to take your Ethereum, for example, transfer them, send them to your wallet, this can be a software wallet like MetaMask. I like to use MetaMask or Amber, as you were talking about, or a Ledger, which is a hardware wallet. And here you get into key management, which you talked about earlier, which is a quite tricky component. But the way wallets work is that you have a set of private keys, which is always how you can retrieve and prove that in case there's an event of know hacking or other things that those are your your cryptos that's how you retrieve it if it if it gets lost so you can never lose those keys and if those keys become knowledgeable to the hacker they too can take your your cryptos right so keeping those 12 words which is your key very mm -hmm. very secure and private that's really important for the operations of managing your crypto investments but then 
What is beautiful about this space is you can connect your wallet to one of these decentralized exchanges and trade in and out of different alternative tokens like Axie Infinity is one that I really like or Sushi or Atom or Polkadot. You can actually buy Polkadot on Kraken, Kusama, Secret. They only, many of these only exist on decentralized exchanges. So then you would need to go there to buy them. Make sure they're on your wallet. And then if it's on a hardware wallet, pluck it out, shut it off, (laughs) (laughs) put it away in a jewelry box or something and only come back to it when you want to sell out. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's an important thing to note that these little hardware wallets are, I invested in Ledger C actually, because, you know, I, I think it is the bridge between the psychology of the sort of new frontier and also having it physically in your hand and, and in a bank somewhere, you know, having like the physical wallet. Yeah, I um, I have a, like a, a setup where I have my Bitcoin and Ethereum on my Ledger wallet uh, because to your point, it's it's hardware is more secure when it comes to the lack of ability for hackers to get in because it's kind of it's not online. Right. A software wallet is always online on your mobile or your computer, so it can be a little easier. I'm not saying it's not secure, but it's mm-hmm. definitely a different security level than a hardware wallet. And then I hold a lot of tokens that I actually kind of stake or use to provide liquidity, which is different ways to earn a passive income or yield in the mm-hmm. crypto industry by participating in the ecosystem. I hold those on a software wallet because you cannot do it from a hardware wallet. So it's like an index fund, basically, staking? No, staking is more like pledging to not sell your tokens for a period of time. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. And then they, you pledge that to the infrastructure, so they are allowed to use your tokens as a way to, for example, run nodes, which validates the network transactions. So you're participating in the infrastructure security. That's one way. Of, that's how I stake my Polkadot and Kusama is because in it that way. It, it keeps it more stable if people are, if, if they're leaving their coins in the infrastructure. And yeah, then they, exactly. pay you, they pay you interest for that? They pay me up to 12%. It's generally around 10% across the staking industry a year on just doing nothing but leaving it in the exchange yeah but and the exchange then runs nodes on my behalf i don't under you've lost me with the running nodes i need to understand what that is but wait but bitcoin you can't stake right bitcoin you cannot stake okay but all of the others you can stake some of them not all okay and what what the hell is a running node it just means so the way that these global ledgers work is that they they run something they coin it nodes it's basically a computer bases globally hardware that's continuously running the algorithms to validate every transaction uh, on the network oh, okay okay and when you when you stake your tokens what you're allowing is you're basically allowing kraken to run nodes with your crypto tokens gotcha and therefore you are earning a fee because they're earning a fee. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, is, is there anything applicable from your 
conventional finance background and investing background that or is that applies to crypto or is it just a completely new way of of looking at in you know investing i think there are definitely frameworks and tools that are applicable from the traditional conventional financial infrastructure that you can apply to the token economy i think from a private investor perspective only investing in what you know and you know in a time horizon that you feel comfortable with those are applicable to any investment you really make there are certain evaluation frameworks like if you are looking at a cash flow token you can do a dfc DC, DFC DCF model, discounted cash flow analysis, and other traditional financial metrics can be leveraged to evaluate what you think the right economic value of the token is. Now, that's a little bit more technical, and you need to understand how to change certain of the inputs because you can't just look up a balance sheet. It's not like right. a public company where you can find you know, public financial information. So you need to kind of look, know what to look for, which is a little more tricky, but it's possible where it's night and day or where it's very different is you have often the ability to participate in decisions being made around certain tokens because it's a decentralized open source network where you know you can go and speak to a lot of the core developers or the founders on these different platforms and forums and they will engage with you so the amount of information you can actually retrieve in the token economy is so much bigger than what you would be able to get in traditional markets today. So that's one area where it's very, very different. Because of the speed of innovation, you are continuously looking at fundamentally new ways of doing business, of thinking about value structures, of thinking about treasury management, of thinking about product development, of thinking about like how the metaverses that we're starting to live in, like these digital universes, how they are evolving and expanding. So that speed of innovation requires you to unlearn and learn a lot of new things, which is also very different than the conventional kind of investing today. Yeah. And, you know, the unlearning piece, as you mentioned, is really critical to it because I find for myself, if I'm holding on to old frameworks, like I just cannot process how these currencies work. So how do you how do you help people unlearn traditional ways and frameworks of thinking about currency and is, is there any advice that you give people in terms of like how to how to restructure the way you think about it? The first thing I would say is grasping how fast things move in the industry will help you refactor a few things around how you think about product roadmaps or how you see the industry evolving. So I think the first thing is the speed of innovation, which is a really difficult thing to grasp because you, you sit here and you think, oh, Ethereum, it hasn't been around that long. How big can it really be? But it has a massive market cap and huge volumes. And it reached that in a few years, right? Yeah, six years. So that's kind of the first step is they have to take a step back. And if by looking at hard data, it took Amazon this long, it took Bitcoin this long, and it took Ethereum this long, helps them kind of put that into perspective. And then one other framework that's really helpful in terms of starting to grasp this unlearning and learning is 
in today's market, you own a stock or share or whatever, and it has a combination of rights. It can be cash flow, it can be governance. They're all kind of mingled into one ownership type, a, a share. In crypto, you can break up the different types of value in so many different ways. So for one project, you can have a governance token, you can have a cash flow token, you can have a utility token. Mm. So and, and suddenly you're then breaking up and you're saying, as a company, I have a token if you want to vote on key governance issues and you want to have a say in, in how we move forward. I have a token if you're just interested in my cash flow. And I have a token if you're just interested in the utility of the platform and participating in that. So suddenly you have a way to this entangle value creation for firms. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, you are able to value crypto projects a lot better. And so with the, I'm trying to figure out the right way to ask the question, but, you know, as I said, like, I, I understand how the value of Bitcoin is, I understand that value better because it's, you can, you can't print more of it, right? It's a finite amount of, of tokens and that's it. But with all of these other coins, emerging coins, limitless, you know, amounts 100% of percent inflation. Right. So explain to me a little bit how 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 these things are going to hold their value. Some of them aren't. Right. I think that's the nature of the game. There's a lot of companies that didn't make it out of the internet bubble. Dot right? com. The, yeah. yeah. But even so, like Ethereum, which I get. I understand more because it's a technology that people can build all of these things and, and integrate with. And so it's, it's a utility in and of itself, but, but you can still print as much ether or print, you know, I say in quotes, no, or you, that's limited as well. So oh. inflation is limited into the Ethereum protocol. Will you explain that? So it basically means that when Ethereum was created, they coded into the software how much was allowed to be printed every year. Okay. How many new Ether coins were allowed to be created. So most protocols, this is a concept that's called tokenomics, token economics, tokenomics. They will outline how they think about inflation, deflation, deflationary mechanisms, inflationary mechanisms in their white paper or in their documentation that they make public. Mm -hmm. So Dogecoin has no inflationary cap. I think they're thinking about proposing one or they have proposed one and thinking about implementing it because of kind of the hype it's gotten. But Dogecoin was created as a joke. Right. Dogecoin was created as a, here is an example of everything that's wrong with certain to uh, tokens and people in the industry. And then Elon decided it was a great project and started tweeting and memeing about it. And then it took off, right? Mm -hmm. But most serious platforms or projects will have a inflation mechanism built into the software that cannot be changed. Right. Unless everybody who is in the governance rights token votes for a change, that's actually kind of the only way. <laughs> they have to vote for change in the decentralized governance, which is really, really hard to do because communities are very, very engaged in this industry. So to your point, 
anybody who's interested in investing in any of these tokens, it's so important to understand which ones have inflation controls, which one, you know, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a critical part of the process, right? Understanding where the value lies in each of these coins, which one is, I mean, Dogecoin is like performance art, right? But now mm -hmm. it's, it's, it started that way and it's gaining traction. I, 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 do you have, do you own any of it? <laughs> no, I don't. And I, I come back to the fact that I cannot support it. I, I cannot sit back. I cannot sleep at night knowing I own Dogecoin and not being able to argue what the fundam fundamental economic value of Dogecoin is. Right. So if I, I mean, it would just, it would not feel right to me. It's kind of the reason I can have so much of my wealth of savings in crypto is because I can stand behind every project that I've supported, every project I've bought into. I can see the economic value of it. I can see how over time it will grow. Ethereum, the number of like transactions is insane and it's only growing, right? And like the number of projects that are building on Ethereum, utilizing their smart contract platform is really, really insane. There's no comparable. Mm -hmm. And how do you recommend people continue their education into crypto if people want to know more, understand when to buy, how to buy, that kind of thing? Where do you recommend people go? Well, they should listen to your podcast for sure. Step number one, absolutely. Step number one. Shameless self-promotion. There are a couple of good news outlets that are worth following. So we release on a monthly basis at address.capital. We release monthly crypto news, which mm -hmm. kind of summarizes what's happened in a month and how to think about volatility, et cetera, et cetera, prices, regulatory landscapes, all of that stuff. Then I would say on, I don't know if people are big on Twitter, but there are a couple of good people to follow on Twitter. So there is a woman called Meltem Dimoros. Okay. She is very well educated in this space and talks a lot about crypto from a lot of different perspectives. So she has a lot of unbiased opinions. I think Willie Wu is another economist who talks well and gives good data on what's happening in the industry. Then there are a couple of newsletters and news outputs. I always follow the Financial Times to understand actually where the sentiment is more broadly. Mm -hmm. And then there is a newspaper called Decrypt, which has really good sources as well. So those would be the ones that I personally follow. There's a lot more. The problem is a lot of it is not quality news. You really need to have a very skeptical mind when you read it. One of the problems is so few people understand the technology. So when they report on it, they don't have the full understanding or the full picture. So it's misguided information. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you for your patience. I do feel, you know, I feel more emboldened and also to ask the questions. And, and I do think that, you know, this, it does feel like the future. Yeah. And it's good that we're asking the questions. It's good that we're having these conversations because it is an opportunity because it is such a new space. It's such a novel space. It's okay. There's no shame. There shouldn't be shame in asking any questions, but there is in financial education. This is an opportunity to ask all of the questions you want to, and everybody will be new to the space. So everybody will kind of benefit from, from those questions. Well, thank you for sharing your brilliance with us. Thanks for listening to my conversation today with Sophie Holm. 
You can hear more from Sophie on her podcast, I Also Want Money. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.